Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I will sometimes, by the way, look for questions in some of my other videos too and take those up, but for the most part, uh, because of the just, you know, the, the volume of content on my channel and the number of, um, you know, videos that I have out there, I really just concentrate on the Q&A videos as far as where I look for questions to answer. So be sure to, you know, put them in the Q&A videos <laughs> or in the, um, or send to me, you know, by the, by the email address because I get all of those. So, and all of them go into this big queue and I kind of go through every week and decide what I'm going to answer when I'm not and, and uh, that sort of thing. And also, just a reminder that I, uh, on the uh, mncriticalthinking.com website, which is my blog, I have a page that lists every question I've been asked from the beginning on all the critical Q&A shows. And that is all on one page so that you can uh, search that page and see any questions I've been asked before that you might be interested in getting the answers to and check those out with links to all of the um, shows. Uh, not, all, not all the links work yet, but I'm, but I'm gradually working on it. Speaking of which, I also wanted to let you guys know that and follow up to what I said last week about making this show into a podcast. That is now uh, done. The podcast exists. It is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play and uh, audio only, so this, pod, this, this show uh, exists on YouTube, just like my Sensibly Speaking uh, podcast does, but it also exists as a separate uh, podcast called Critical Q&A that you can subscribe to on any of those services and just listen away uh, that way. And so, so far, I have to upload all of the back episodes. I've gone back to the beginning. I think I have the first 10 episodes uploaded. So this one's not, this one that we're on right now is not uploaded yet as a podcast, but it will be soon. It'll just take me a few days to get everything all caught up uh, on that so that the full critical Q&A, you know, uh, content library is there for you as a podcast. But you can subscribe now and you could uh, check out those first 10 episodes as a podcast. Okay. And uh, also, as I have been doing, I do want to take a moment to validate those people who signed up on my Patreon this last week uh, as supporters. Very much appreciated. Uh, so we have uh, 67 floors up, uh, bumped up their weekly amounts. Um, let's see, uh, Sandy Quick, I might have noted those uh, last week. Uh, Donnell Allen, welcome. Uh, Anthony Magnabosco, who does street epistemology, he actually signed up as a, as a patron. Uh, Alexandra, Mandy Pausa, and Connor Smith. So, I uh, just wanted to put that uh, little thank you here to all of you guys for signing up. I really appreciate your support. It, believe me, it makes a ton of difference. Um, any, you know, any support you guys throw my way is always appreciated and very, very much uh, used to keep this channel going. And finally, I know, you know, I'm doing a lot of uh, little stuff here, but I just also, because we are getting so many new subscribers and viewers to this channel, and uh, I keep, I am continually surprised by people who, who find out that, they, I, you know, that I've written a book and they don't know about it. And so this isn't like some sales pitch. I just want you guys to know I've written a book about Scientology and a lot of the questions that I get asked on this show are actually answered in this book. It's called Scientology A to Xenu. 
an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. And I wrote this, um, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, and it's, it is a critical analysis of Scientology. It is uh, my story, my part of, the, of it as a memoir is really only chapter one. Most of this book is a breakdown of the beliefs of Scientology, the system of Scientology, the hierarchy of Scientology, and some of the pseudoscience of it. And there are three chapters at the end about recovering from Scientology. So I think this has held up pretty well so far. And, uh, and so I wanted to let you guys know that it's available on Amazon as a regular book and as an ebook and as an audio book. I, I narrated it also. All right, all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Burned Heretic. When you began questioning your beliefs in Scientology, I imagine that ended up completely destroying everything in your life that you had built as a Scientologist. Do you have the courage to continue questioning your present beliefs, or are you done questioning things for a while? Well, this was such an interesting question I couldn't help but take it up, um, because yeah, of course I am not done questioning my beliefs. I constantly am questioning and reevaluating my views and beliefs on things and, and my opinions. Uh, I think any good critical thinker would, and it would be silly of me to put myself out there as the critical thinker at large if I wasn't willing to examine new information all the time about, you know, beliefs or whatnot. I'm not sure, I'm not sure who the person is who asked me this, so sometimes I get asked questions like this in a, in a fairly cynical way or in a sort of a, a sarcastic tone, and I can't, of course you can't ever tell when you're, you know, this came to me by email. Um, so I don't know, you know, if this is like somebody who's got an agenda asking me this, like, well, you know, how come I'm not reevaluating my beliefs or st uh, not, you know, how come I stick to my guns when it comes to, say, conspiracies <laughs> or uh, the earth is flat or things like this, right? Um, and, you know, just because I've taken a position on something doesn't mean I can't change my mind. And I, I give myself uh, that, I grant myself that, that right all day, every day, right? I just need to see compelling evidence or a good reason why I should change my mind. And when it comes to, of course, as longtime viewers of this channel know, if when it comes to conspiracy theories and especially global conspiracy theories and, you know, Alex Jones type nonsense, um, I, don't, I don't give that stuff any credence because I used to be a conspiracy theorist when I was in Scientology. I've made an entire video about how that information and how Alex Jones, David Icke, 9-11 truth or information, all of that stuff, going back to the Illuminati and the global conspiracies and the, the 12 bankers and that whole, you know, idea, that, that whole concept I used to, you know, totally fall into because uh, L. Ron Hubbard subscribes to a lot of that and I was a Scientologist and so therefore I believed it. And, uh, and it was critical thinking that, that led me to question some of those ideas, which led me to look at all of the information I could, I, I could find on 9-11 truth or stuff, and then on Alex Jones and David Icke and, and some of their claims. In fact, a lot, you know, almost all of their claims I looked at one by one and sort of debunked and, and decided, you know, for myself that, uh, that they're, you know, that there are, it, it's sort of the boy who cried wolf a little bit with those guys, because when you debunk them so many times, then you just go, look, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done accepting information from that source, right? Which I don't want to go ad hominem on Alex Jones. The man is perfectly capable of uttering truth any day of the week. But so far, uh, his claims continue to be 
you know, some sort of, uh, not, well, not some sort of, his claims continue to be so easily debunked and, and to be such nonsense that I have a really hard time understanding how anybody can give the man any, any credence whatsoever. Um, but, you know, I'm, but I'm totally willing to look at any individual idea on its own merits and look at the evidence of it or look at the reasoning behind it and examine whether there's truth there or not as far as, you know, my worldview goes. I, the same thing applies to science. Same thing applies to alternative therapies and woo and pseudoscience. Um, you know, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to have such an open mind, as Carl Sagan says, that my brains fall out. But I, but I am willing to look at things. And I'm not, I try very, very hard to not be dogmatic about um, having a pro-science stance, for example. I know, for example, that there are plenty of instances of scientists getting it totally wrong, of corruption in the field of science, of, of uh, you know, one-upmanship and uh, arguments from authority and all the logical fallacies that you want to list out exist in, in one, you know, uh, aspect or another in the science, in the field of science, medicine, um, you know, theoretical science, like any, any level of this stuff, right? From evolution to, uh, you know, biology, chemistry, geology, etc., uh, psychology and psychiatry, right? Which I, I think are sciences, but, you know, kind of softer sciences. They're not really very hard sciences. So, um, so I'm willing to look at anything in those fields and go, yeah, they got it wrong, right? I'm not a dogmatic pro-science guy. And, um, and, but I, I do believe from my experience that, you know, there is, there is more to be, there's more positive stuff to be gained from a pro-science, rational sort of skeptic view than there is from, you know, the wooey alternative therapies, um, you know, pseudoscience, uh, goop, you know, sort of Gwyneth Paltrow nonsense, you know, let's stick things in various crevices in our bodies and this kind of stuff, because some of that is very, very dangerous. And uh, a lot of charlatans, a lot of fakes get into those fields. So, um, so I, you know, so I sort of talk about it in broad terms, but in doing so, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm just closed-minded, because I don't, I don't think I am, and, uh, and I've entertained all kinds of wild ideas. Uh, I mean, hell, I used to be a Scientologist, so... <laughs> So, you know, I've, uh, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes and I've crawled my way back out of them. And I don't see when I've done that, that I need to crawl back down into one, maybe to sum up this answer, uh, just because somebody has some idea that I don't know what I'm talking about and therefore I have to dive all the way back down the Alex Jones rabbit hole or something. I, I don't really see the need to do that, you know. So, um, so that's, I don't know, you know, I think that's kind of my view on things. I'm willing to look at stuff. Um, but I absolutely uh, feel that I am open to, uh, you know, anything anybody wants to throw my way. Alrighty then. Did they have a pomp and circumstance type of funeral for L. Ron Hubbard, or were they cavalier about his body, thus not giving much ceremony to his death, but rather choosing to focus on the idea that he had gone to Target 2? How does a Scientologist deal with death? Are they discouraged to mourn because the dead, especially if old, are now moving on to a better situation. How will one know in a future lifetime that they signed a billion-year contract if they were in the Sea Org? If they miraculously would know somehow, how come there are not those that have died of, say, some disease in 1972 that are not now saying, 
okay, I'm a different person, but I remember I signed a billion-year contract in the Sea Org, so here I am again. And if you didn't show up to fulfill your billion-year contract, would you be in breach of said contract? And if so, what and who would enforce the punishment? All right, well, that was about six or seven questions. I think I didn't count them all, but uh, let's go ahead and talk about this. I've talked about death in Scientology before. In fact, I made a whole video about it, so I will refer you to that, and I'll put a link to it in the notes below so you can check that out. Um, but I, what I was interested in with all of your questions there was the Sea Org contract stuff and the things about guys coming back from past lives where they were Scientologists or Sea Org members. And I will take this up because you asked the question as though it was some sort of understood thing that nobody's ever come back saying they were a past life Scientologist or Sea Org member. And the fact of the matter is there has been instances of that. Um, there have been people who were recruited into the Sea Org who claimed, this is my second time around or who, while they were in Scientology, started getting auditing and then started recalling, you know, that they were in Scientology and in the Sea Org last time around. And so long as their, you know, their facts line up somewhat, you know, straight. I mean, in other words, if they say they were in the Sea Org, but that they died in 1960, uh, well, that's not going to work because the Sea Org wasn't even founded until 1967. So something like that, Scientologists would go, yeah, no, I don't think so. But... If you had some guy who, you know, said that he, that he died in 1972 and he was coming back around and now he was, you know, uh, you know, 20 years old or something and he's getting into Scientology and he says, yeah, I was in the Sea Org last lifetime. Uh, nobody's, nobody in Scientology is going to say, no, you weren't. Uh, nobody's going to say that, right? In fact, they're going to go, wow, that's awesome, dude. That's amazing. Wow. You know, because it doesn't happen that often. There's not a lot of people who do that. And nor should there be, because there weren't a lot of people in the Sea Org before 1972. You know, it was a few, few hundred people with all the, you know, revolving door of people going in and out. I don't, I don't even know if it was even 200 people by, by 72, maybe. Um, you know, 300, 400. I, I really couldn't say. I've never done a census on early Sea Org membership. But it was not a lot of people. Um, and no, there's nobody running around enforcing past life contracts. I mean, there's not even any way to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, the, the place where that sort of thing would tend to come up in the world of Scientology would be in an auditing session where a person would be recalling past life incidents. Now, if they started talking about, you know, I was in the Sea Org last lifetime to their auditor, the auditor is not going to then start recruiting the person for the Sea Org or start, you know, holding them accountable to their responsibilities to their billion-year contract or something. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And... Um, the information that's in an auditing session would be, you know, that, ki that kind of information, at least, would be confidential. Nobody's going to go talking about that stuff. But, um, but mainly the people who say that kind of thing in session will then go out of session and talk about it to other people outside of it, especially if they're interested in joining the Sea Org or they're sort of thinking about it or wondering about it or something like that. And they've you know, kind of drunk enough Kool-Aid in Scientology to start thinking that that would be a good thing to do. So that's kind of how that sort of thing happens. And if the person were to start talking about that, you can bet that a Sea Org recruiter would absolutely start like, you know, hey, come on, man, you got responsibilities, you got to do this. You know, if you were, you know, around last lifetime, it's, you know, it's certainly your duty to come back in now they would have no qualms or scruples about pushing those buttons uh, in trying to get the guy to sign up now. 
So, um, and I saw that, I, I observed that happen. I didn't do that kind of recruitment, but I um, certainly did see it. So I could, uh, I could, you know, that's why I can talk with some certainty about this. As far as Hubbard's funeral goes, it was, he was cremated within a day or two of his body being discovered, if I remember right. It was within days, almost immediately. And, um, and his ashes scattered. And uh, the event that was done at the Hollywood Palladium where David Miscavige emceed it uh, was all about how Hubbard had gone on to Target 2 and had, and had shed his mortal coil, so to speak, had, had, had shed his body as a, as a uh, you know, a distraction, I think was the word that he used, to his further OT researches. But all of that was just, you know, stuff and nonsense entered in to tell the public because Hubbard actually didn't die in very good circumstances. He was, you know, on drugs and he was old and senile and, and he was, you know, really losing his mind. And, um, and it was kind of, you know, when he died, it was sort of like, okay, good, thank God he finally died, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Uh, very few people actually knew much about it or, you know, the circumstances of it where he even was physically located. And uh, that's a whole nother story which has been told and I'm not gonna retell it here. But, um, but, but no, there was no pomp and circumstance with his funeral. And you can, uh, if you want the whole story on that, you can, you can check that out on Google because it's well, well documented. Juan Amigo. Regarding declarations of suppressive persons, who exactly has the authority to make the declaration? Does every org have someone who has that authority or how high up in the church does it need to go? Are there ever acknowledged mistakes in the declarations or as with so many things, is the church absolutely never wrong about it? All right, here's how somebody gets declared a suppressive person. It's not just by whim, uh, for the most part. David Miscavige has the power and authority to just verbally declare somebody and off they go, right? That has happened. And, um, and it would be followed up later by this procedure, but he's, he has the authority to do that. I don't, you don't generally see that going on with lower echelon uh, staff members, or Sea Org members, I should say. Um, so, theoretically, Sea Org missionaries have the authority to do that, but I've never really seen it done where, where it's stuck for any, any real length of time. Um, the procedure goes that a, a full documentation is done with the person's ethics files and reports and, and information as to why they should be declared a suppressive person. There's a checklist that's followed uh, to declare someone a suppressive. And the, um, uh, generally the ethics person, the ethics officer of an org, like a local city level org, or in the Sea Org, ethics officers are called MEAs or Masters at Arms. And they have paperwork that they'll use same paperwork to, to put it, this, they'll follow this checklist put all this paperwork together to show step-by-step step how this person, one, has committed high crimes against Scientology according to Scientology's justice codes, and two, um, how they have already received the earlier ethics gradients or, or actions leading up to a declare. Because very rarely is somebody just outright declared uh, from zero to declare, right? Uh, I mean, it can happen, it has happened, but for the most part, you would first have to get uh, condition assignments, a court of ethics, a committee of evidence. These are the steps I'm naming out here are the justice actions that occur in Scientology that are, that are the lesser uh, severity actions, right? You know, a condition assignment is, you know, you, hey, you're in trouble and, and you got to go do this Scientology ethics condition. And that's 
you know, that's a whole thing. Again, I'm not going to get into a lot of details about it. Uh, if you're really curious about it, you can, uh, you can Google conditions of existence in Scientology. But basically, there are, you know, there are, there are labels that are given to somebody and there are steps the person has to do based on the, the condition they were assigned in order to get back in the church's good graces. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a declare order. It's not your declared suppressive. It's just that you're in trouble because you are given this condition. Um, then following that sort of thing would be a court of ethics, which is a lowest level justice action that gets done. It's a one-on-one -on -one thing. A, a presiding officer meets with the person and, and goes over whatever the charges are that's called, that were called in the court, and then some discipline. Guilt is pretty much assumed when a court of ethics occurs, and um, then the person is assigned some kind of disciplinary action, uh, amends usually, something like that, or, you know, they're uh, kicked out of the course room for a week or two, you know, some, some lightweight kind of uh, justice action. And if the person keeps screwing up and keeps committing crimes or high crimes in Scientology, then they could end up in front of a committee of evidence, which is a, which is a much more severe form of Scientology uh, justice, where it's a panel of people, I think three to five people, who meet with the person, go over all the charges, the person gets to plea innocent or guilty to each of them, and give evidence and give information as to, you know, why those charges are or are not, you know, uh, uh, factual, and then the committee decides and meets amongst themselves and decides what's going to happen, and then the severity of the actions uh, taken against the person are much steeper than the court of ethics. Uh, a person could be ordered to auditing or sec checking or could be order, ordered to uh, uh, make amends, you know, hundreds of hours of amends, you know, this kind of thing, uh, to, you know, restitute for the wrongs that they committed, right? That's the committee of evidence. And then if all those things have been done and the person's still screwing up, then you get to a suppressive person declare. Um, now, again, a lot of those steps can be skipped in one way or another, but they're not supposed to be. And the checklist is supposed to document that all of these things have been done with the person. And once this checklist is put together, it's a whole pack. And it's called a CSW, or Completed Staff Work. It's an administrative package of information in a folder with the person's name on it. And it gets sent to, it's either put together by or is sent to the Continental Justice Chief, right? Every Scientology sector, uh, Western United States, Eastern United States, Canada, LATAM, which is Latin America, right? Um, Europe the United Kingdom and ANZO, which is Australia, New Zealand, Oceania. Those are the continental sectors of Scientology worldwide. Each one of them has a continental justice chief. That's his job. That's the name of his job. And his job is to review these submissions for suppressive person declares as well as administrate standard Scientology justice procedures in his continental zone. So the CJC would review this packet of information, accept or reject it, and if he rejects it, he says why, and he sends it back to the person who put it together, or he himself put it together, and then, and by the way, the, all the CJCs, or the Continental Justice Chiefs, they're Sea Org members, of course, once they approve this package of information, the CSW, it goes up to the International Justice Chief, or the IJC. Um, that guy, I think, currently is still a guy named Mike Ellis. He is uh, in Hollywood. That's where he works, at the Hollywood Guarantee Building. 
and he receives all these submissions around the world for suppressive person declares and is the final arbiter of approving or disapproving them. And he uh, also looks it over for completeness and all that sort of thing. Um, now again, David Miscavige or very, very senior church officials can bypass this whole line. They're not subject to it, right? David Miscavige is not going to listen to IJC's opinion of whether he should or shouldn't declare somebody. If David Miscavige says a person's declared, they're declared. But, um, you know, IJC is like, you know, one, two, three echelons below David Miscavige. So, um, but that's basically how the system is supposed to work, right? Uh, now, if there are mistakes made, and there have been mistakes made with this, injustices have, of course, occurred uh, within the world of Scientology and declaring people, and a person can ask for a board of review or a, um, a, a committee of evidence, right? One of these two things can be done, and I won't get into all the minutiae of what the differences are between these things, but they're basically review actions to uh, see whether it was justified that the person be declared suppressive. and. That would be uh, an action anybody theoretically could ask for who's been declared. Uh, sometimes it's granted, sometimes it's not. It's very arbitrary as to whether you're going to get that kind of justice because once you're declared, then the only person in the church you can talk to or send any communication to at all is the international justice chief. And often uh, they'll just delegate that duty down to the continental justice chief. So for example, if I was interested in having my declarer lifted, then I could contact the CJC West US, because I'm in the Western United States, and I could say, you know, please, sir, let me, you know, get a review on this and see whether this is justified or not. And the CJC would then, you know, fly, the, fly it up the flagpole to the IJC. And, and if they grant that review, then I could get a, you know, I'd have to travel at my own expense to go see some Scientologists and plead my case to them and, and decide, you know, see whether they decide that I was unjustly declared or not. And in my case, it was absolutely justified according to Scientology's high crimes and I would not have the declare lifted. Um, and so in order, and, and if that review process uh, you know, fails and the person still declared a suppressive person, then they have to do these A to E steps, step A, B, C, D, E, which are laid out in the Scientology Justice Codes. Um, I laid them out in my book, what they are. And uh, basically they're making, you know, paying a lot of money, making a lot of amends, doing a lot of begging and pleading and, uh, and, and paying more money <laughs> to make amends to the church so that they will consider you back in good standing with them, right? So that's, that's basically the layout on it. I hope that all makes sense. Um, there you go. Aaron Peters. Scientology has its own idiosyncratic video style. In making your own videos, have you learned anything from Scientology videos or perhaps learned what not to do from them? Similarly, has L. Ron Hubbard influenced your writing style at all? Having spent so much of your life immersed in his writing, I imagine you would be able to imitate his style quite accurately. I'd also be interested to know what authors outside the church have been important to you as a writer. I don't think I've really been influenced too much by Scientology videos. They're pretty over the top. They have a certain style, as you say, and, and the promotional videos especially are just ridiculous. And even when I was in the church, I thought they were too much with the pumping music and the, you know, gleeful people that, you know, just ecstatically talking about their wins and gains. It's, it's so over the top. And, and, and even in the world of Scientology, they think it's a little bit, you know, much. Uh, but it's kind of how David Miscavige wants to present Scientology, and so that's the style and tone of the videos. 
Um, I've never even thought about Scientology videos as far as how I make my own stuff, except I did think of a parody video I was going to do one time, and I might still do it at some point, to sort of satirize Scientology-style videos. But um, but otherwise, no, I'm not really into, into that style too much. As far as writing, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's not really an influential writer to me, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. I, um, you know, the guy just put out so much output, but I don't like his writing style, uh, especially now <laughs> that I'm more critical of, of what he's got to say in the whole subject matter. Um, you know, some of his writings are, are perfectly fine. Uh, some of his issues, some of his bulletins, maybe internal church issues are, are you know, some of them are fairly sensible. But, um, but I'm, I'm, and I'm talking about writing style now. I'm not talking about the actual content necessarily. Um, when I say some of them are fairly sensible, I mean the way it's written is clear, easy to understand. Um, you know, you read it, you know what to do, and you can go do it, right? Uh, but many, many, many of his policies are very ambiguous, very, and, and even contradictory one to the next. And that makes it uh, very difficult to be able to, to confidently follow his orders and directions. And his, um, but his book writing, uh, I have found to be atrocious. I mean, really, really bad. Many of his books, in fact, I think almost all of his books were transcribed. He, he dictated them, uh, except for Dianetics and maybe one or two other books. And uh, Dianetics, of course, is a horribly written book. It's awful. It, the prose is just awful. And, uh, and very, very unclear. He repeats himself throughout uh, and he's not clear in what he's in his claims. He's not clear in what he's saying. I mean, some of his claims are very bold, very clearly stated. Others are very wishy-washy and equivocal, very nonspecific. So you can read a lot into, you know, some of his statements, and of course Scientologists do. So, uh, so not, you know, very scientific writing, not very well, clearly defined writing. And so, uh, so very, very open to many, many different interpretations in some cases. And this causes all kinds of trouble with Scientologists, of course. So, no, I don't think that I want to have L. Ron Hubbard influencing my own writing. I've sort of developed my own style, I guess, you know, as, as I've written, you know, my, my book and my blog articles and, of course, all my videos. I tend to, um, my sentences tend to be too long. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to have some run-on sentences that I, that I try to work on. That's always been the case for me. Um, influential writers uh, that I have enjoyed and, uh, and have modeled some of my fiction writing after. I've done some fiction writing in the past. I hope to maybe do it again in the future. And I was very influenced by um, Steinbeck and by Hemingway. Um, very much so. I got turned on to Steinbeck because he's such a simple writer, a very powerful writer, because his statements are so clear and concise. And uh, that was recommended to me for my run-on sentences when I was young, and that's always stuck with me. Um, I loved Stephen King as a writer. I just did. You know, I just loved his fiction, uh, especially his early stuff, 70s and 80s stuff. Um, some of that's just, you know, really classic horror to me or, or high fan, dark fantasy. And um, I read a lot of Dean Koontz also. Um, there was an author named Robert McCammon that I really liked, uh, who was very, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say copycatted Stephen King, but he, because uh, he wrote some really good stuff all on his own, 
um, but he was a he was also an influential writer for me uh, in the eighties. And uh, those are yeah. And then of course nonfiction wise, I think the the writer who's more recently had the most influence on me and who I have modeled my work after was Carl Sagan, and uh, especially having read the Demon Haunted World. That is a fantastic book on, it's almost a manual of critical thinking. And, uh, and if I could, you know, step up to, you know, his level of reasoning and critical thinking, I'd, you know, if I could get even halfway there, I'd be uh, pretty happy with myself. So that's, those are my writing role models, so to speak. JR, I have a question as a follow-up to your answer to the first question in the critical Q&A number 122. Do Scientologists think it's possible for their movement to be defeated? Or do they have some sort of determinism on their side or some guarantee that it will always return via reincarnation if it is somehow destroyed? For example, do they think it's possible that a powerful group of evil wogs could round up and kill all the Scientologists and burn all their books, etc.? Could an asteroid destroy Earth before we get a chance to reach the stars and send Scientologist missionaries to other planets? If some such a thing should happen, will the universe have to wait another gazillion years for someone new to discover Scientology? Or would the Thetan of LRH or some other OT8 just reincarnate in a new body on a new planet if necessary and carry on the mission? Or are free Thetans already doing this? Boy, this is actually a really big topic. I could do a whole video on this, um, but let me see if I can encapsulate some answers for you. Um, Scientologists believe that Scientology will always be around in some form from here on out. But they are prepared for nuclear war, holocaust of some kind, or an apocalypse by the secret vaults that are built into the grounds in Tremensha, New Mexico, and Twin Peaks in California, and these, and I think there's a place they were uh, aiming to build up in Wyoming, and there's another place up in Northern California. Uh, these locations are confidential to Scientologists. They're not confidential to the rest of the world. Like the Xenu story, Scientologists are the last ones to know. But that because they don't know, they assume nobody else knows. And so they think that uh, the world is, you know, that, that Scientology is safe from the world at large because they have these secret vaults built into the ground in these different locations that the Church of Spiritual Technology is overseeing and that all of L. Ron Hubbard's materials are safely ensconced in these vaults on titanium plates or on nickel-plated records that it will survive uh, anything at all, including a nuclear war, because they're vacuum-sealed in space-age technology metal cases, which are buried, like I said, deep under the earth. So, uh, so Scientologists have always, you know, have had the idea since the 80s when this project is this called the Preservation of the Tech, project and ever since that thing was launched they've been briefed on it and told that you know that things are secure and that Scientology will always be here no matter what uh, now as far now that's physical universe physical world reality of, of Scientology materials as far as Scientologists are concerned but as far as the spiritual aspect of it and people having spiritual awareness and this kind of stuff um, they believe that if you get trained in Scientology, not just audited, but also trained, you will retain that information. Now, as I've noted in, in, in I think, my last video and earlier videos, uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, people don't retain the information from earlier lives and bring it back into this one very often. 
uh, you know, if they have pretty good imaginations and have done some study, they might convince themselves that they have. But I have yet to see one Scientologist come up with, you know, speaking a language from a past life or coming up with new inventions from earlier inventions that they've supposedly created 10,000 million years ago. Uh, but they believe that the Scientology information will stick with them because this lifetime they are partaking not only in the study of Scientology but also the auditing of Scientology which is going to free them of all their you know reactive mind and all the encumbrances of all past trauma and so they'll be free and clear to remember things as they move on from this life forward so it'll be a whole different uh, circumstance for them is what they think, right? That's the whole goal of Scientology is to to break the wheel of, you know, being stuck in the hamster wheel to nowhere of life after death after life after death. So, so they think that they'll retain that information and there's actually, get this, because I don't know if it's ever been talked about, but there's a film in Scientology called YTRs, W-H-Y-T-R's, question mark, right? YTRs. And the, the name of the film is the subject of the film, which is that Scientologists need to be trained in how to deliver a, a basic communications course because that's the way you get people into Scientology, no matter what planet you're on. And Scientologists are expected to know this information so that they can go to another planet, and this is shown in the film, and teach a whole other culture, Scientology just like L. Ron Hubbard did, right? Now, L. Ron Hubbard never presented himself as somebody who was doing that here on Earth, just to answer that question, because I'm sure it's going to come up. L. Ron Hubbard is the originator of Scientology. He's not the guy who's a messenger. So he's the one who says, I, he says, I discovered all of the principles of dynamics and Scientology right here, right now, on Earth, and you guys are going to take this stuff and you're going to go out to other planets when you die from, you know, on this planet, when you move up the bridge, you're going to go on and you're going to take it off to these other places. And you're going to, that's how Scientology is going to spread throughout the entire universe. So that's why you have to be able to teach Scientology at a basic level and start the whole cycle all over again somewhere else, right? And he even shows in the film you know, some kid, the Scientologist who goes to this other planet is like 12 years old when he starts disseminating Scientology and he's got all these people listening to him and he's delivering these communications classes and then he's figuring out how to make an e-meter on this other planet with their technology and, 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 and he's supposed to duplicate what L. Ron Hubbard did there, you know, from what was done here. Of course, we all know that if he does that, uh, that's the best guarantee Scientology will never propagate anywhere else. But that's what's shown in the film, right? So that's kind of fun. And that is sort of this idea that Scientologists have. There's no, I never met a Scientologist or even a Sea Org member who was seriously planning or talking about doing this let's go to another planet thing. But that was sort of this expectation that's shown in this film and that's part of Scientology's dogma. So if push came to shove, they'd have to answer up on that. They'd have to they'd have to do that. So or say that they were going to do something like that, right? Um, so that's, you know, kind of their view about the the longevity of Scientology is that it is always going to be around. And I don't think that Scientologists really have too much paranoia about the Sykes or a bunch of wogs getting together and destroying and burning down all the orgs and stuff. 
Um, there, I think, I, I think uh, that's not really a very serious, legitimate concern of Scientologists these days. Um, yeah, I, I just don't. I don't think that's where their heads are at. I think most Scientologists are more concerned about avoiding the wedges and trying to figure out how to not, you know, have to be forced into giving more money. And, uh, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, of, of disaffection in the church with its management structure and with all the incessant fundraising. So that's kind of why the whole thing is tanking now. So, you know, that's, that's the scene there. It's time for Flash Answers. David Miss Cabbage. Leah Remini has said several times that she had to go into the church a minimum of two and a half hours every day. Since after OT3 you are self-auditing, why would she be going into the church? Also, does this apply to all celebrities? I really can't imagine Tom Cruise doing this, especially with all the movies he makes. Thanks. Okay, well all the levels after OT3 are not solo audited. OT4 and OT5 are actually delivered by an auditor that's not done solo. OT6 is actually a great big course and OT that's delivered at Flag in Clearwater, and OT7 is solo audited, and OT8 is solo audited on the ship, on the free ones. Um, but regardless of that, she was talking about going into the org to get training and do classes, and there's you know thousands of hours of, of potential training available to all Scientologists as well as the auditing. And that's what she was talking about going in for two and a half hours a day on. And yes, that does include Tom Cruise. But just because they're pressuring you to go in every day doesn't mean you are going in every day. It just means that that's the, what they're, they want you to do. And they totally get it with celebrities who are on set and have to travel around that that's what they have to do. And they, they uh, you know, accommodate the celebrities accordingly. Whereas with people like you and me, they're all over those people to get in the org every day or as much as possible and do their Scientology studies as well as their Scientology auditing. Andrew McAuliffe. Hypothetically, if Miscavige is cynically manipulating the Church of Scientology and doesn't believe an iota of Scientology, would he be able to confide in anyone or would he have to keep it to himself and not even previously tell his wife? I would have thought that if he did reveal it to anyone that there would be too much of a risk of them turning SP and spilling the beans. I'm finding it hard to imagine pulling off a con and not getting the satisfaction slash release of being able to confide in someone. Or maybe sociopaths don't feel the need to share their successes and joys in life socially. Well, I could give a long and involved answer on this, but I put it in the flash answers because really bottom line is that, yeah, your, your last sentence is really the, the, the important one. Uh, narcissists and sociopaths are not at all interested in what anyone else thinks or has to say about what they're doing or what they think or how they feel. So, uh, so I really don't think that Miscavige uh, really cares at all about what anyone else you know, thinks about what he thinks. Uh, to him, he's the, the center of the universe, right? Um, and also, I, I should clarify that I have definitely stated that Miscavige is, I believe that Miscavige is not a, a believer in Scientology, but like Hubbard, I should, I should clarify that that's a multi-layered thing because I do believe that Miscavige does believe in some of the technology, but I think organizationally, and I think, um, you know, in terms of the workability of it and how to deal with people using Scientology, that's the stuff he sort of, uh, I don't know, eschews, you know, sort of puts, puts aside, doesn't really care that much about. And, um, and I think his, his, so his worldview is so self-focused and self-centered that he doesn't see that 
that, that Scientology is meant to actually help people and do things to improve conditions, right? That's its stated purpose, and you could use Scientology for that reason if you so chose, but of course he's not doing that. Leo Taxel. I just saw the word engram used in an episode of Star Trek, and it was in reference to a painful memory. Weird. What do you make of that? I don't know. I guess I'd have to see the episode to see the full context of it. But engram is an English word that means a trace memory on a cell, right? At a cellular level. Hubbard ripped it off and, and repurposed it for Dianetics. So they could have been using it that way. Uh, and, you know, I think that's probably more plausible than the idea that some Star Trek writer had the idea that Scientology and Dianetics would be around in the future of Star Trek and that they would be using Dianetic procedures. I don't think that's why they were using that word in their script. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. Uh, as always, I appreciate everything you guys uh, say and leave in the comments section, so please leave me your feedback. Good, bad, or sideways, I am interested, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.